Welcome once again to the Southern Spectre Podcast. I'm your host Isaiah, and as always, thanks for listening. I would like to start today's show with a simple thank you to all out there in Radio Land that take the time to listen to my small but ever-growing podcast. Your support and love does not go unnoticed. If you're new to the show, stick around a while. Who knows? Maybe I'll start to grow on you. If you like what you're hearing, you can follow me on Facebook at the Southern Spectre Podcast, on Instagram at the Southern Spectre, and you can also follow me on Twitter now at Southern Spectre. I'd like to give a shout out to Lucky Duck Soapery for their product. Y'all, my wife has been using one bar since the beginning of December by the sink so people can wash their hands. This stuff lasts. The scent she has uh, out now is lemon basil and it just smells so clean and it just goes so well with how our kitchen should smell. Uh, now my personal favorite is the tobacco and bay. This soap smells amazing. I kid you not, this smells like something I would use to marinate in before me and the wife have a date night. It's awesome. So Lucky Duck Soapery is based in Yemassee, South Carolina, and they have completely blown away my expectations of their soaps. The soaps use all natural ingredients and are all handmade in small batches, ensuring the best possible product. Head over to LuckyDuckSoapery.com to order yours today. They'll ship it straight to your door. Go check this place out, guys. I also would like to give a shout out to uh, Lift Your Story podcast. Uh, thank you, Laurie Ann and Roy. I really do appreciate you guys having me on your podcast earlier this week. Uh, if you guys go check out their show, it's called Lift Your Story podcast. Uh, you can find them on Instagram. You can also find them on Facebook, uh, Lift Your Story podcast. Uh, I do believe they're on YouTube as well. So uh, I did an interview with them and I, I can't thank them enough for allowing me to be on their show and to help me grow my show. And so I'm trying to do the same in return. It's called Lift Your Story Podcast. Go check it out, guys. All right, guys, I also have a uh, have a special project in the works. Um, I'm working on it. Uh, it's coming along and uh, it's going to be another podcast. And so if you've been enjoying this one, I think you'll really enjoy the next one. Um, so right now what I'm doing, I'm reaching out to each and every one of you. Hit me on Twitter. You can hit me on Facebook or uh, Instagram. And uh, I'm looking for nominations, recommendations of uh, interesting people, places, businesses, cultures, restaurants, you name it. Uh, that truly have made an impact on the South. Uh, I would like to spotlight those that make up our region and make it what it is today. I'm trying to spread a little positivity. Uh, I appreciate any and all suggestions, so please send them forth. Now, on with the show. Now it's time to pull up a chair, settle in, and cozy up for the Southern Spectre Podcast as we dive back into our countdown of the darker side of country music hits Part 2. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I would first like to put out a warning about today's episode. Today's episode holds some of the most darkest and disturbing things that I've talked about so far on the show. So I'll be sure to give a fair warning prior to each segment that I feel may be disturbing to others. At that time, you can decide whether to press forward or press stop. Now, on with the show. 
Number four on our countdown is Delia's Gone by Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash has a number of albums, but when talking about his album, American, Johnny says he knew he wanted to include another song like Folsom Prison Blues. Quote, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. End quote. Johnny says he wanted another song like that. They came across the song, Delia's Gone. That's when Johnny realized he had already recorded it back in the 60s. So he wet his chops, worked the song, and recorded it once again for his album, American. The backstory for Delia's Gone comes from the year 1900. It happened in Savannah, Georgia on Christmas Eve when a 15-year-old by the name of Moses Houston shot and killed 14-year-old Delia Green. The couple were in an apparent relationship and were at the home of one Willie West in the Yamacraw neighborhood. After shooting Delia, Moses fled but was soon caught and handed over to authorities by Willie West. Delia would die around 3 a.m. on Christmas morning. Savannah newspapers would report that Moses had confessed to the murder, but at the trial in 1901, he claimed the shooting to be an accident. Others would testify at the hearing that Delia called Moses a, quote, son of a bitch, which resulted in a violent reaction. Moses was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Moses' attorney would portray the young man as a mere child who, quote, got into bad company and so unfortunately committed the act that he now suffers for, end quote. Moses was paroled after serving 12 years by Governor John Layton in 1913. Some are not quite sure what became of Moses, but some say he died in New York City in 1927 after more run-ins with the law. Delia Green was buried in Laurel Grove Cemetery south in Savannah in an unmarked grave. Now in Cash's song, Delia's Gone, we see that bad things are in store for Delia, as Cash says, If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. Then we are treated to where the young man, I'm assuming, met Delia. I went up to Memphis and I met Delia there, found her in her parlor and I tied her to her chair. Then Delia is described as being low down and trifling and she was cold and mean. Kind of evil make me want to grab my submachine. Then we see what fate awaits low down and trifling Delia. First time I shot her, I shot her in the side. Hard to watch her suffer, but with the second shot, she died. Now that Delia's out the way, we get to see what's become of submachine-loving gentleman caller as things take a turn for the downright spooky. But jailer, oh jailer, jailer, I can't sleep. Cause all around my bedside, I hear the patter of Delia's feet. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. But is she really? Coming in at number three on our list is the Everly Brothers with 
down in the willow garden. Now this one is most definitely disturbing to say the least, but honestly, one of my favorites. I can only imagine the number of needed hours on a therapist's brown couch soaked with hair product of the ones who came before me. I'm sure I've heard this song sometime in my 40 years playing somewhere on late night radio or streaming from my speakers from an AM station, but where I first actually remember hearing this song is in the Coen Brothers movie, Raising Arizona. In the movie, a young Holly Hunter is pacing back and forth across her bedroom floor trying to soothe an even younger Nathan Jr., who has awakened from a nightmare. This song is her tune of choice to croon for the young infant, but don't be fooled by its lullaby-esque harmonies, as this is no mockingbird for the ages. I could not dig up where the song first came from, but it is believed that it was inspired by Irish ballads, such as Rose Connolly, and from the W.B. Yeats poem, Down by the Sally Gardens. During my research, I also could not find any story that served as inspiration for this either, but nonetheless, I'd like to share with you some of the haunting lyrics, and you'll see for yourself why it made the list. Quote, down in the willow garden where me and my love did meet, as we sat a courtin', my love fell off to sleep. I had a bottle of burgundy wine, my love she did not know, so I poisoned that dear little girl on the banks below. End quote. So right out of the gate we find ourselves in the willow garden where we stumble upon two young lovers on a date. The murderer has now poisoned his beloved. Let's keep it moving. Quote, I drew a saber through her. It was a bloody knife. I threw her in the river, which was a dreadful sight. End quote. Now we see that this poor girl has been poisoned, stabbed, and now thrown in the river. But justice is served in the final verse as the murderer sings, Quote, My father sits at his cabin door, wiping his tear-dimmed eyes, for his only son soon shall walk to yonder scaffold high. My race is run beneath the sun, the scaffold now waits for me, for I did murder that dear little girl, whose name was Rose Connolly. End quote. A true murder ballad to say the least. A horrible event has occurred, but the melodies in this song are terrific. Alright, we're at the halfway point of our countdown, which brings us to a story. In 1746, Henry Fanning had made a large purchase of land in Jamaica. 290 acres to be exact. This was to be the home for him and his future bride, Rosa Kelly. A few months after their marriage, Henry died leaving Rosa Kelly with everything. Rosa would go on to marry George Ash, who built their home on the 290 acres of land Henry had purchased, and it was to be known as Rose Hall. Poor George died once the home was completed. Then, in 1753, Rosa would marry Norwood Witter, who ended up spending all of Rosa's fortune and leaving her with a mountain of debt 
But guess what? Norwood died in 1767. Rosa, giving it the old college try, would marry once again to John Palmer. They were both happy, that is, until Rosa died in 1790, and John would follow in 1797. John Rose Palmer, John's grandnephew, would take over the estate in 1818. Now we introduce Annie Patterson and the rumors surrounding her. Annie migrated from England to Haiti along with her parents in 1812. One year after moving from England, Annie would lose her parents to yellow fever. Annie had been left in the care of her nanny who would go on to teach Annie everything she needed to know about voodoo. After the death of her caretaker, Annie moved to Jamaica at just 18 years old. Annie had heard tell that John Rose Palmer was on the market as an eligible bachelor. Using her skills in voodoo, Annie cast a spell over John Palmer and Annie Patterson soon became Annie Palmer. Rumors were that she was having relations with the slaves. John soon found out about this and pummeled her with an equestrian's riding crop. John Palmer was dead within 24 hours. Legend says that Annie had poisoned her husband and continued her routine with the slaves. Once Annie had her share of any one of them, she would dispose of them. It said Annie would station traps for all of her slaves all over her estate. Annie would soon adorn the title of White Witch of Rose Hall due to her cruel practices and her use of voodoo. Annie would go on to marry twice more with each husband meeting a gruesome demise. One of Annie's slaves that went by the name of Taku strangled her last husband. Despite Taku's and Annie's relationship, Annie would fall for Robert Rutherford, but Rutherford was actually in love with Taku's granddaughter. Annie did some conjuring of her own and cast what is known as an old hig curse on Taku's granddaughter. The old hig stalked the young girl until she was dead. Now the old hig is a spirit or ghost that assumes the form of an old lady during the day, but at night it sheds its skin and becomes a blood-sucking demon. Once again, we see the similarities between Caribbean culture and South Carolina's own Gullah Geechee community as the old hig sounds like a distant cousin of the Boohag. Of course, this didn't sit well at all with Taku, and he paid a visit to Annie in the middle of the night, strangling her in her sleep. Annie died in 1831 at the tender age of 29. After she was buried, all of her possessions and belongings were burned so that her soul could not attach itself to any of these objects, as those that feared her the most were afraid her angry spirit would come back for revenge. Some say the ritual that was performed to seal her hate-filled spirit in her tomb was improperly performed, and now her spirit roams the estate. That is indeed quite the makings of a ghost story, if it were true. The truth is that before she was Annie Palmer, she was actually Annie Mary Patterson, and was Jamaican through Scottish descent. 
Annie married John Palmer in 1820, and he would be her one and only husband. Neither of them died at Rose Hall. Due to the enormous debts, they moved from Rose Hall, where it stood nearly 130 years, without an owner. John Palmer would die in 1827, and Annie would follow seven years later. After John passed, Annie would sell off the rest of the Rose Hall estate for a mere 200 pounds. So why all the legend? A newspaper article from 1868 had bestowed the title of White Witch of Rose Hall to Rosa Palmer, probably due to all the husbands she left in her wake. In a book written by Herbert G. DeLisser, entitled The White Witch of Rose Hall, the author now has brandished Annie with the title of White Witch. The book was completely fictional, of course, but given the time frame of these events and at the pace of which one would send and receive information, it's easy to see how truth and fiction fuse together, giving us the legend of Annie Palmer. Well, now comes the country music tie-in. Johnny Cash and wife June Carter Cash would eventually come to own the home Cinnamon Hill, a home not too far from Rose Hall. In The Man in Black's autobiography, he addresses an incident here at Cinnamon Hill that was witnessed by himself and several guests. Johnny says the figure of a woman in a full-length white dress made its way through the dining room heading to the kitchen. The figure walked the floor and moved to a pair of double doors that were closed. The guests, along with the Cash family, watched in bewilderment as the figure walked right through the closed doors and then the sound of rat-tat-tat, rat-tat, came from the opposite side of the door. Johnny writes, quote, We've never had any trouble with these souls. They mean us no harm, I believe, and we're certainly not scared of them. They just don't produce that kind of emotion, end quote. Needless to say, this wasn't the most terrifying encounter to occur, during their time here at Cinnamon Hill. Sometime during the 80s over Christmas dinner, three men stormed the home taking Johnny's 11-year-old son, John, hostage by holding a gun to his head. Cash and the rest of the family adhered to the would-be thieves' demands, and in turn, they released their little boy back to them. Shortly after the thieves had fled, they were caught. This is only further substantiates the theory that the dead can't hurt you, it's the living you have to be cautious of. Cash was so inspired by the legend surrounding Rose Hall, he wrote the song, The Ballad of Annie Palmer. Although the song doesn't make the cut on our countdown, it's still noteworthy just the same. Alright ladies and gentlemen, this is your warning. The following segment is quite disturbing to say the least. It involves molestation, rape, cannibalism, murder, and body torture. If you feel you may be disturbed by these topics, please press stop or skip ahead. Here we go. Number two on our list is Psycho by Eddie Nowak. On July 13, 1966, a man entered a townhouse in Chicago's Jeffrey Manor neighborhood. The townhouse served as a dormitory for nursing students. The man who was wielding a knife held Mary Ann Jordan 
Marlita Gargalu, Velnita Passion, Pamela Wilkening, Nina Joe Schmall, Suzanne Ferris, Patricia Matasek, Corazon Amuro, and Gloria Davy in a room for hours. The crazed individual would lead the women out one at a time, stabbing and strangling each of them until they died. The killer finished each woman off one by one until the final woman, Gloria Davy. The killer would have his way with her before strangling her. Corazon Amiro managed to hide herself under a bed when the man had left the room with one of the other women. She managed to keep out of the killer's sight until 6 a.m. the following morning. Fingerprints left at the scene of the crime were matched to a possible suspect. Two days later, a drifter by the name of Claude Lunsford was enjoying a drink on a fire escape of the Star Hotel along with two other men. Lunsford immediately recognized one of the men identified as the killer from a picture in the evening paper. At 9.30 p.m., Lunsford dialed the police after finding the murderer in his room at the hotel. Although the phone call had been placed, for whatever reason, police did not respond. The killer then attempted suicide, and the hotel desk clerk phoned in the situation sometime around midnight. The killer was taken to the hospital, where he was again recognized, but this time by Dr. Leroy Smith, who had also seen the picture in the paper. The murderer was apprehended by police. His name was Richard Speck. Singer-songwriter Leon Payne was having a conversation with his guitarist, Jackie White, and they were indeed discussing the Richard Speck murders of 1966. Other mass murders began to make their way into the discussion as well, including Mary Bell. On May 25, 1968, Mary Bell would strangle four-year-old Martin Brown in a run-down home in Scottswood, England. Mary, along with her friend Norma Joyce Bell, broke into a daycare, leaving behind actual notes saying they were responsible for Martin Brown's death. Police would later chalk this up as a prank. July 31st, the same year, both girls strangled three-year-old Brian Howe, not far from where the first murder had been committed. Police reports tell that Mary Bell would later return to where the young boy's body was left and carve an M into the child's abdomen. She also cut his hair with a pair of scissors, scratched his legs, and mangled his genitals. Norma Bell would go on to be acquitted, but Mary Bell was charged with manslaughter. In 1980, Mary Bell was released from Ascam Grange Prison after serving only 12 years. The most worrisome of all this is that Mary Bell would turn 11 the day after killing Martin Brown. Norma Bell was only 13. Mary Bell was 23 years old when she was released from prison. The psycho songwriter was a bit of a history lover and over time became familiar with infamous mass murder killers such as Charles Whitman, Ed Gain, and Albert Fish. 
This conversation directly inspired the songwriter to write Psycho. On May 25, 1928, Frank Howard responded to a newspaper ad which read, quote, Young man, 18, wishes position in the country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street, end quote. In other words, an 18-year-old male was looking for work in the country and he had provided his address. Three days later on May 28th, 58-year-old Frank Howard arrived at Edward's doorstep seeking to hire the young man. Howard would explain to Edward that he needed the help of a young man like himself on his farm as he had six children and his wife had left them. Howard would even extend the offer of work to Edward's good friend Willie. Once a business agreement had been reached, Howard was to return a few days later to retrieve the boys. However, Howard never showed. Instead, he sent in his place a handwritten note explaining he would be in touch over a few days' time. Howard would show up to Edward Budd's home the following morning. The family, being as gracious as they were, decided to invite Howard to stay for lunch. Howard explained that there was a birthday party that he had to attend prior to taking the boys back to the farm and invited Gracie, Edward's younger sister, to join him. The family agreed, and that night, neither Howard nor Gracie would return. The family became worried and reported their daughter's disappearance to the police, and an investigation was soon underway. News would come by way of letter to the Bud family, telling in horrific detail the murder of their daughter, Gracie. This is that letter. My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from a dollar to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlet brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the eleven-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass, and of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. 
the little boy was next. He went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then, I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me, all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's disturbing, to say the least. We press forward. Police would note that the handwriting matched the letter from the original letter Howard had sent them. Despite their best efforts, police could find no trace of Frank Howard nowhere. While the investigation into little Gracie's disappearance was underway, another child had went missing. Four-year-old Billy Gaffney had been playing outside with his next-door friend, whose name was also Billy, when he vanished. Billy from next door told police that the boogeyman had taken his friend, Billy Gaffney. Soon after Billy Gaffney had been reported missing, eight-year-old Francis McDonald was playing on his mother's porch when his mother took notice of a gray-haired, peculiar-acting old man uttering to himself as he walked on by. Francis's mother would dismiss this. Francis had gone to join his friends at a nearby park later that afternoon. His friends reported seeing the young Francis walking into the forest with an older, gray-haired man. Upon realizing young Francis was now missing, the family quickly began a search. The eight-year-old was found in the woods near the park, severely battered, beaten, and bruised. He had been strangled to death using his own suspenders. Police had no leads at this point other than that they were on the lookout for the gray man. Police soon discovered that the letter that had been sent to the Bud family contained an emblem of the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association, a.k.a. NYPCBA for short. The letter was compared to that of the handwriting of every member of the NYPCBA, but no match had been found. A janitor for the NYPCBA came forth with the admittance that he had taken some of these paper sheets containing the emblem home, and he had left some at an old room house where he used to stay. The police made their way to the boarding room where the landlady confirmed that an older man who matched the description had lived there for the past two months. 
He just left a few days before police arrived. However, with a stroke of luck, the landlady notified the police that before he left, he instructed her to hold a letter that was to be delivered from his son. Of course, police were waiting for Howard when he arrived to pick up his letter. That's when they grabbed him. The reason he was so elusive and that no leads could be found is that his real name was Albert Fish. Albert Fish would tell many a different testimonies and confessions to the police and psychiatrists. Albert would describe his intentions with Edward Budd and Willie, confessing he wanted to take them to his farm and kill them, but once he had met young Gracie, his motives had changed. He wanted to kill the young girl. He would transport her to a house in the country where she would pick flowers out in the yard while he went upstairs and got naked. He then called her to him. When she saw what he was up to, she immediately became frightened and begged for her mother. Albert confessed to choking her to death. Afterwards, he decapitated the young girl and chopped her into smaller portions, wrapping some in newspaper for travel. Police located the remains of young Gracie based on his confession. Over the course of his life, Albert Fish would have several run-ins with the authorities, but each time, charges were dismissed. Albert would discuss in great detail the murder of Billy Gaffney. He confessed to tying him up and beating him. He claimed to have drank the young boy's blood and used the rest of him for stew. Albert was not your run-of-the-mill psycho. He was calm, cool, and collected. Albert would also confess to enjoying pain and enjoying inflicting pain on others. Most of his victims were young boys Albert also had a joy for writing and sending obscene letters. An x-ray would later reveal that Albert Fish had inserted needles into his body, particularly between his anus and scrotum. 29 needles had been found inside of Albert. At his trial, Albert's defense would try to prove their client was mentally ill. However, the jury did not buy into this. Albert had been considered a, quote, psychopathic personality without a psychosis, end quote. After 10 days at trial, he was found guilty. The psycho-songwriter Leon Payne was a bit of a history lover and over time had become familiar with infamous mass murder killers such as Charles Whitman, Ed Gain, and Albert Fish. The conversation with guitarist Jackie White had inspired Leon Payne to indeed write the song Psycho. And if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it definitely shows. In the first verse of the song, it says, Can Mary fry some fish, mama? I'm hungry as can be. Oh lordy, how I wish, mama, you could keep the baby quiet because my head is killing me. The mention of Mary in the very first line refers to Mary Bell. The mention of Fish is, of course, direct reference to Albert Fish. In the second verse of the song, it says, I've seen my ex last night, Mama, at a dance at Miller's store. 
She was with that Jackie White mama. I killed them both, and they're buried under Jenkins Sycamore. The mention of Jackie White, of course, is in direct reference to Leon Payne's guitarist that goes by the same name. Then, in the third verse of the song, we hear, Don't you think I'm psycho, mama? You can pour me a cup. If you think I'm psycho, mama, you better let them lock me up. So it seems to me that whoever is doing this killing is indeed questioning their sanity, and it looks like he's getting advice from his dear sweet mom. But we venture on down to the very end verse, and it says, You think I'm psycho, don't you, mama? I didn't mean to break your cup. You think I'm psycho, don't you, mama? Mama, mama, why don't you get up? Say something, mama. Now, in my personal interpretation of this, it sounds like a nod to Alfred Hitchcock's psycho, as I believe his mother has been dead this entire time. Now, as far as the rest of the song goes, I'll let you look it up and listen for yourself. Now we come to our number one song on our countdown. Unfortunately, I could not determine the winner between the next two songs. However, the two ballads deliver the same haunting message. Coming in at number one on the Southern Spectre's darker side of country music countdown is David Allen Coe with The Ride and Alan Jackson with Midnight in Montgomery. Hiram Williams was born on September 17, 1923, in the small community of Mount Olive in Butler County, Alabama. Hiram would later be referred to as Harm by his family, but his friends would know him as Herky or Poots. But eventually, to his devoted fans around the world, he would be known as Hank. Hank had been born with spina bifida occulta, which greatly affected his spinal column. Hank lived a life of pain due to this fact. Several variations tell of how Hank would come by his very first guitar. His mother claims that she had earned the money to purchase the guitar from selling peanuts. However, other residents claimed that they were the ones who had purchased the guitar for the young Hank. Williams would eventually meet street performer Rufus T. Tot Payne. Payne would give the young Hank guitar lessons, and in return, Hank would give Payne money or home-cooked meals. Later, in 1937, Hank had a bit of a run-in with his P.E. teacher due to the fact the teacher expected certain exercises from the young Hank. Lily, Hank's mother, demanded the teacher be fired, and when the school board refused, she loaded up the family and moved to Montgomery. Hank and Payne lost touch, but Hank would give credit to Payne as his one-is-only teacher on the guitar. Then in 1937, Hank would be a contestant in a talent competition held at the Empire Theater. Hank won the contest with his original song, WPA Blues, and gladly accepted his prize of $15. Hank never actually learned to read sheet music, but he based his compositions off of personal experience and storytelling. Hank would hang out in front of the WSFA radio station strumming his guitar. Due to his recent talent competition win over at the Empire Theater, 
This helped to capture the attention and ears of the radio station producers. Occasionally, they would invite Hank inside the station to sing live on air. Hank was so popular with the station's listeners, the radio station gave him his own 15-minute show twice each week for a mere $15 each week. By today's standards, that's $300. Music lovers just couldn't get enough of the singing kid. Hank's radio show quickly launched his music career, and before long, he started his own band known as the Drifting Cowboys. In 1943, Hank would meet Audrey Shepard at a medicine show in Banks, Alabama. Shepard told Hank she wished to move to Montgomery with him and they could start a band. The two were married in 1944 at a Texaco station in Andalusia by Justice of the Peace, although the marriage would be declared illegal since Audrey's divorce from her ex-husband didn't meet 60-day trial reconciliation laws of the time. On May 26, 1949, Audrey and Hank would welcome their son, Randall Hank Williams, into the world. He's now known as Hank Williams Jr. Hank and Audrey had a very rocky marriage, and due to Hank's severe back pain, he was known to have problems with alcohol and painkillers. The couple would divorce in May 1952. December 31, 1952. Hank was scheduled to make an appearance at the Municipal Auditorium in Charleston, West Virginia. Due to an ice storm in the area, Hank couldn't fly to the show, so instead he hired Charles Carr, a college student, to drive him to his scheduled shows. Charles Carr would contact the Charleston Auditorium to inform them that due to the ice storm, Hank wouldn't be able to make it to the show. Carr was then instructed to transport Hank to Canton, Ohio for a New Year's Day concert. Hank and Carr arrived at Hank's hotel in Tennessee, where a doctor was requested to see to Hank as Hank was suffering from the combination of alcohol and painkillers he had ingested. The doctor attended to Hank, giving him two shots of B12, which also contained a small amount of morphine. Hank and Carr checked out from the hotel, but due to Hank's coughing and hiccuping, the bellhops had to transport him to the car. Sometime around midnight on January 1st, 1953, Carr and Hank crossed the Tennessee state line and arrived in Virginia. Carr would stop to grab a bite from an all-night restaurant. When he asked Hank if he wanted anything, Hank simply said he did not, and those are believed to be the musician's last words. Carr would climb back behind the wheel where he drove until the vehicle in which they were traveling needed gas. When Carr stopped for gas in Oak Hill, West Virginia, that's when he realized Hank was dead. Hank had been deceased for so long that rigor mortis had begun to set in. The cause of death was ruled as, quote, insufficiency of the right ventricle of the heart, end quote. Hank's body was taken back to Montgomery and placed in a silver casket. At his funeral on January 4th at the Montgomery Auditorium, it is believed that 15,000 to 25,000 people were in attendance. Hank was buried at the Oakwood Annex in Montgomery, Alabama. David Allen Coe would release the song entitled The Ride in 1983. It was one of David's most successful songs. The song tells the tale of a drifter 
who's headed to Music City in hopes of stardom. The drifter is trying to hitch a ride from Montgomery, Alabama. Soon, a 1950s Cadillac comes out of nowhere and asks the man if he needs a ride. When he gets in the car, he notices the stranger's hollow eyes and hears solid country gold playing from the car's radio. The drifter also takes notice that the driver is white as a ghost. It's the ghost of Hank Williams come to give the drifter a ride. Songwriter Gary Gentry tells the haunting feeling of the song is directly related to Hank Williams himself as Gary believes Hank helped write the song. Gary met a gentleman named J.B. Detterline Jr. during the filming of a movie called Hank Williams' Tribute, The Man and His Music. Detterline pushed Gary to write a song in tribute to the late country artist. Detterline happened to be a huge Lefty Frizzle fan, and between Gary and Detterline, the song Wherever Hank and Lefty Are, That's Where I Want to Go, was born. At around 10 p.m., Detterline had to leave, but Gary was determined to write something more. Gary claims he lit some candles and drank a few spirits in an attempt to conjure up old Hank's ghost. According to Gary, he did all the things most horror movies tell us not to. He began hollering out into the night saying all kinds of mean things to Hank. Gary finally yelled into his apartment, Hank, why were you so big? Just because you died young? Show yourself! Gary took a look down his long, dark hall to see Hank Williams sitting on his couch, shirtless. At 4 a.m. that morning, the song was like fluid running out of him. Gary called up Detterline to let him hear the song. The song was so good, Detterline woke his pregnant wife to give a listen. David Allen Coe would perform the ride at the Grand Ole Opry sometime later. In the final verse, when Hank reveals himself to the hitchhiker by saying, You can call me Hank, as David was singing this line of the song, the power to the Grand Ole Opry shut completely off. If you've never heard the song, go do yourself a favor and give a listen. It's one spooky ride. Alan Jackson had been traveling around the country promoting his albums at the start of his career. One day he found his way into Montgomery, Alabama. Jackson had never been, but he knew Hank Williams' grave was there. During Jackson's stop in the city, he made his way over to Oakwood Cemetery Annex as a storm was making its presence known throughout the area. Jackson says there was a strange feeling in the air that night among the stones. This gave Jackson the inspiration for his hit, Midnight in Montgomery. Some folks believe that Hank Williams is still around, especially at the Ryman Auditorium. A few employees believe they've actually seen the ghost of Hank Williams. Some folks report seeing a white ghostly figure that looks a lot like the musician. One person claims that they saw him walking around backstage. Another witness claims they saw a white mist that appeared on stage that looked a lot like Williams when he was singing. Another witness has claimed to see his ghost in an alley next to the Ryman. There's also another ghost that haunts the Ryman known as the Gray Man. No one really knows who the Gray Man is, but many artists and employees have seen him sitting in the balcony 
that overlooks the stage. Along with these two ghosts, it's also believed that Roy Acuff is said to haunt the Ryman as well. It's said he is known to turn on the lights and open the curtains after employees leave. If this happens to be the case, we know that Hank Williams is in good company. Hank's ghost is also believed to haunt Tootsie's Orchid Lounge right next to the Ryman. Some say his spirit resides in the Andrew Johnson Hotel in Knoxville where he spent his final night before passing away on New Year's Day. Whether in spirit or in song, he's definitely made his way back into the lives of others. That's going to wrap up this episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I hope so because it took me quite a quite some time to put it all together. So I hope you really do enjoy that. Um, once again, be sure to go check out Lift Your Story Podcast. I uh, can't thank those guys enough, Roy and Laurieanne. They were very hospitable. And uh, <clears throat> I thank them again for inviting me on to their show. Also, uh, to follow me on social media, you can follow me at Instagram at the Southern Spectre. You can follow me on Facebook at the Southern Spectre Podcast. And um, I just want to thank everybody. Um, I've had, you know, a lot of jumps in numbers and stuff here recently. So uh, I really hope to continue to do this and be on the lookout for another special project that's, that is currently in the works. Um, I just can't say thank you enough. Um, Y'all tune in next week. I'll have another good show for you. Uh, But before long, I'm going to end up having to go to every other week as to make way for the next project in line. So I hope everyone understands. And as soon as I get everything in order for the next project, you guys will be the first to know. I hope you guys take care, stay safe out there, and I love you. Y'all be safe.